0: What's going on? I wasn't sure I was ever going to bring back the pod, but I found a guest that was perfect to have on right before the U.S. Open as he is quite the incredible golfer who has almost qualified for the U.S. Open multiple times. His name is Alex Blickle from FTN, and we had a great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I encourage you to hang around. We talk about everything the sweatiest stuff from ownership to course layout to just golf and journal, of course. We touched on the PGA and live stuff. Uh, It was a really great talk. I appreciated having him on. I also want you guys to know that this is the Week of the US Open, so the big guy has a busy schedule. If you like everything you're seeing, I have the course preview. I have this talk, which you're watching Sunday. We'll have the emergency stream Wednesday, and I'll be uh, doing all the showdown hoedowns live. Uh, uh, for round two, round three, and round four, as you can see right here, right? And don't forget, next Sunday, you're watching this on Sunday, the what? The 11th. On the 18th, me and Sia are going to do a Sunday sweat for round four of the U.S. Open. Tune in. Hang out with us. We'll be commentating, watching it live. We'll sweat our lineups together. Have a good time, so make sure you're there, okay? And then lastly, don't forget the big guy is giving away over $1,500 in giveaways for the U.S. Open. There are going to be tickets you can make with me. I'm going to be giving away 888 and 30 $25 uh, Millionaire Maker tickets that you get to build with me. Not only are you getting my money, you're getting my time. To get into those, simply you can be over on Twitter and you can like and retweet. Of course, you're here on YouTube, so I simply want you to like, subscribe, and leave a comment and tell me what uh, what player do you think is the perfect fit for this course in your opinion because we talk a lot about that. Who do you think is the perfect uh, uh, player uh, that is a, a perfect course fit, right? Leave me that. That will get your name in the drawing and on Twitter, and of course, uh, uh, be there Wednesday for the live stream, because that's what we'll also be just drawing some from the chat. So lots of ways to win this incredible amount of money, because you know what? We're not poors! Anyways, guys, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Have a good day. Oh, shit, you thought, you thought the pod was never going to come back. I'm not going to lie. I was kind of thinking the pod wasn't going to be back because you do, if you don't know this shit, this should be hard. This <laughs> does not work well into the schedule. But with the U.S. Open lingering, I had a, I, I have a, 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 a friend, a new friend in the industry that uh, is an incredible golfer and could uh, uh, actually almost qualify for the U.S. Open multiple times. And I thought, well, this guy probably uh, uh, knows more about the U.S. Open than I'll ever know. So I think that we have to get him on here to talk. And we're going to talk all things... Uh, 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 my dude, Alex uh, Bickle, is on with me from FTN. Uh, how you doing, brother? Doing really well. Excited to be on for the first time with you. Yeah, I mean uh, the, the PGA DFS. It's a small little community, and uh, uh, it's uh, you know it, it's kind of niche. But I have a goal. Let's grow it. I want. I, I just want PGA DFS to blow up. Because I swear, if people just knew, you know, there's a lot of people that like golf, but they and they like to bet golf, but they don't know how fun DFS can be. And I think it adds like a whole another layer to it. That like it's an untapped market, and no one's really pushing it outside of like four sweaty tryhards in this industry to let it become as big. You know, it can never be as big as NFL or probably NBA. But I truly think mm-hmm. it can be the third biggest. DFS board. Am I like completely off base with that? No, I mean, I I have
1: yet to meet anybody who has given PGA DFS a try and haven't said like, this is a phenomenal sweat. This is so much fun.
0: And I've seen you at the top of like some showdown leaderboards. So I know you're one of my showdown brothers, right? yeah i love showdown it's you, great yeah that that's the real secret not once you get them converted to PGA dfs and then you're like hey instead of being kicked in the nuts a week long do me a favor just try out this showdown all right because you know any mm-hmm. slap dick can put it together for 18 holes all right they can't <laughs> you know they can't do it for 72 but they can do it for 18
1: all right yeah without question and, and then you, you also get like just uh, if you're doing anything like ownership projections for showdown that just gives you this major advantage because a lot of sites aren't even doing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's projecting showdown ownership, especially now that the market is getting sharper. It's, it's tough. It's, a, it's, a, it's the biggest mm-hmm. moving target ever. It used to just be uh, a Saturday and Sunday showdown was so easy to predict. On Sunday, everybody's mm-hmm. going to play the leaders. On Saturday, everybody's just going to play the good players who are ball striking. It was so easy to predict. But now people are getting yeah. sharp to, oh, shit, that doesn't matter because for a single round, any of these dudes can just completely flip it around and go nuclear. Um,
1: yeah, and, and people are wising up to the fact that you get easier conditions in the morning sometimes, like in the PGA Championship. The only guys, or I, I should say at uh, Mirfield Village for the Memorial, it was like the only guys with ownership on Saturday were the guys teeing off right away.
0: You know, I once shit on a guy on on uh, Twitter for saying that, like, you need to actually play golf to be good at DFS, but this is the <laughs> first time I think I've ever sided with him. You just made a really great point. And you, as a legit golfer, not a slapdick weekend uh, uh, hero like me, but as a real golfer, you probably were like, well, duh, of course courses play easier in the morning. You've got softer conditions, less trampled greens, typically less winds in the morning than in the afternoon at mm-hmm. a lot of courses. And so you probably already knew that. And so many people, I, you know, I teach people this stuff and they act like i I'm like revealing the secrets to the universe where somebody who's actually played real golf probably is like, well, no shit. It's easier in the morning.
1: Yeah. And, and especially you can, you can sometimes get hints about what they're going to do with a golf course. So like the superintendent at Mirfa village was basically talking about his biggest test throughout the week was going to be keeping moisture in the greens, which means he's going to have to water the hell out of them overnight and things of that nature. So uh, we, we then knew, they're going to be somewhat soft in the morning, or just at least receptive, only so that it doesn't get out of hand in the afternoon. If you recall, like a few years ago at Sawgrass, there was a week where the greens were running at like 15 and they were so dried out that by the end of some of the days, it was just completely unfair. And now, you know, uh, every week that it's firm and fast and they have the potential to get like that, they're always on guard with a, a little bit more watering to do. To and make
0: sure that that doesn't work. There was a massive edge last week at Memorial, right? Just knowing, just playing those morning guys at Showdown. I mean, we're talking like they were playing two different courses. Like it was insane yeah. that the split differences in just a two hour mm-hmm. window, right? So uh, knowing that stuff helps. So here's one I want to know because I've, I've been getting, you know, I really try to be the weather, let's play the game guy and get guys out there in the best conditions. Because the truth is, all these guys can go out there and nuke a course. But if this guy has his A game and this guy has his A game, which one's going to perform better? It's going to be the guy in the better conditions. Tell me, what mm-hmm. influence does does, does does cold. Like I consider it seems like under 60 degrees, there really seems to be an impact on scoring. Like it, it seems like the best conditions are in the morning when there's little wind, roughly upper 60s, lower 70s seems to be kind of the nut scoring conditions. So when it's 55 degrees, does that like does that affect scoring as much as I think it does? It's mostly just
1: about the carry distance of the ball. So, you know, the colder it gets, the shorter you're gonna be hitting the ball less carry you're going to get. And so it, it really depends on the golf course and the overall conditions of the course at Mirfield village carry distance off the tee is super predictive of success. It, it helps you in a lot of ways. It's not just that you're hitting shorter clubs in, but there are a number of holes where being able to carry a certain yardage allows you to take more aggressive lines off the tee It effectively widens the fairways. So in that scenario, like especially, Uh, Yeah, there's certainly a a temperature that can fall below that. It just makes the golf course a lot tougher because you can't end up carrying some of those force carries.
0: So you're losing distance. Does it affect does it affect second shots as much because you're kind of guessing on your distances? You don't know if the cold's going to affect you eight, uh, eight yards, 10 yards, three yards. And so there's more guessing going into those shots.
1: Yeah, I think with with approach shots, it's probably a little bit more when cold and moisture mix in together. So, you know, a lot of the time, if the morning is cold, it means that the dew is going to hang around for a little bit longer on the ground and that moisture on the ground can make it a little bit more predictable. So I think it's maybe less about the cold, a little more about the dew when it comes to the approach play difficulty.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I like. I, I think you actually have to be like a legit ball striker and know how to compress a golf ball to actually appreciate any of this stuff. You know, I hit that one seven iron every round where I think I'm Tiger Woods, but other than that, I'm basically garbage, which is a perfect transition. You're a legit golfer. I think you're the first, like, legit, legit golfer I've ever had on here. I, my first question I always ask, we buried the lead, is – are you good at golf? And I'm going to go ahead and spoil the answer. The man is good at golf. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about like, uh uh, 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 your, uh, background in golf. And then we're going to jump straight into you qualifying for the U S open and like how real that is. It's funny because the,
1: the question of how good are you at golf? Like it, it depends on so much context. So on the one hand, I'm, I'm clearly not that good because otherwise I wouldn't be talking about and betting on golf all the time. and be playing it mm-hmm. in all of these tournaments. Right. So, uh, at, at least part of my game has some, some real shortcomings there. Yeah, I've I've had, I've had uh, a good run in golf, I guess you could say. I, I really started playing, as we talked about before the show, like when I got my driver's license in high school, I think I went from a 12 to a two in that summer, something like that. And uh, I was playing soccer, basketball, baseball through high school, not golf. I played in the summers, played in some uh, golf association of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Golf Association type stuff there, and then played basketball and golf in college. And after my first year uh, at Kenyon College in Ohio, that's when I realized, hey, you know what? I might be able to kind of take this uh, golf thing a little bit more seriously and turn pro after school. So that's what I did. And uh, as you alluded to the U.S. Open qualifying, there are two rounds to qualifying to get into the U.S. Open. There's local qualifying and then final qualifying. And both stages are about wherever, wherever you go for your location, it's going to be about 70 guys for four spots, something along those lines. And I've gotten through locals, four times now almost made it a fifth this year it was the first alternate did not get the call to play in finals that was this past monday so went uh, went to woodmont country club drove at like 3 30 in the morning to make sure i was one of the first guys there on site practiced warmed up all that stuff but never got the call uh but <clears> I, you I, you I didn't completely... consider a tanya harding move at all you didn't go clubs and knees <laughs> oh I, I was considering it and uh I, I can't tell you how many people like reached out like hey if you need someone to come you know take a a three iron to somebody's ankles just let me know but no one showed up to actually do it
0: everyone has a price that's an important lesson to remember <laughs> everyone has a price so all right so getting into view i mean i look i i always of course i always say the masters is my favorite um is my favorite major you know because it's just so perfect and it's at the same course every year but honestly if from a dfs purpose i know i'm going to catch some shit for this i love the novelty of the open championship being on in the middle of the night and watching mm-hmm. that but as far as just fucking carnage and enjoying a four-day sweat and just winning i don't know why i've just us open has by far been my best tournament and i think it's just because all the chalk donkeys get punished here uh <laughs> i love the us open i think it is the best of the majors there we go i said it i am offended tell me i'm a crazy man
1: no i'm, I'm kind of with you there i i i've definitely found a pattern uh historically from a dfs perspective for me and actually it's you know, co- coincidentally, it's also true for my own personal golf is the more difficult the scoring conditions, the better I seem to do. And so, yeah, U.S. Open uh, fits perfectly for me, too, in that way.
0: Oh, we got a grinder here, uh, which I, I, I meant to ask. What is the best part of your game?
1: It's off the tee and it's not even close. So I I tracked my stats relative to PGA Tour guys a few years ago and I was gaining like 0.6 strokes per round off the tee and then just hemorrhaging strokes with my irons. And so when I said like shortcomings uh, earlier, you know, it's iron play around the green play too. Um, uh, certainly is not anything close to tour level. And then I'm, I'm a good putter, but that's only as of like two years ago. Previous to that, you know, I could I could have those uh, Akshay Batia type rounds that he had this morning where it's just like he missed you know, a 6-footer, 8-footer, right. 10-footer, 6-footer on the first nine holes or whatever it was today. I had way too many of those previously. I've turned myself into a good putter since and, and won a couple of tournaments because of that. But, yeah, the, the iron play, as much as I worked on it, it just never got there.
0: I hate to be this guy because I think he's a fucking loser. But it sounds like your game compares best to patrick rogers killer off the tee can scramble his (laughs) balls off and can putt but just an absolute train wreck on approach um and uh Mm -hmm. you know uh, he he actually plays long tough course as well because he can put it out there far and then when he hits his shitty irons he can save it with his around the green and his putting um i've just kind of embraced as a loser so we'll just run with it i prefer keith mitchell but patrick rogers unfortunately not too far off please tell me you don't wear a visor on the course no, I don't. okay. So that's where the Keith Mitchell analogy stops. No visor. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. That that's such yeah. a donkey dick look. What are you, a football coach <laughs> in 1997? What are we doing? Uh, okay, so uh, uh, you're good at golf. You have uh, nearly qualified for the U.S. Open. Let's get a little bit to this course, right? Because I I think that you know this is going to kind of turn into a U.S. Open quasi preview mm-hmm. show. Uh, what do you know about LACC? I know that it's in Los Angeles, and I know that it's not Riviera. Don't. That's all I got so far. Where, where can you help me?
1: It's funny. I have an uncle who has played pretty much every single golf course in LA numerous times. And, and he says LACC very clearly the number two to Riviera number one, but the two of them are in a tier of their own for LA golf courses. I don't really have a strong lean in terms of how this course is going to play, how it's going to test players. Certainly it is a unique setup. I don't know if you have looked at kind of the the flyover preview. There's like a 15 minute YouTube video that you can go watch. The course looks Really, really cool. Definitely some holes that you just don't see anywhere else. And for me, like as a as a golfer and, and somebody who has been able to play a bunch of really cool courses throughout the US and and elsewhere too, like the the number one thing for me about whether or not I love a new golf course is how many of the holes are unique, right? How many of the holes are nothing like any other hole that I've played before? And I think LA Country Club has a number of them. What I can say in terms of a course fit perspective is that we actually do see a really, really consistent pattern from one year to the next, so regardless of the golf course, in the way that these U.S. Open courses challenge players, there's more distance being rewarded than usual, there's a little bit less rewardance to accuracy off the tee, and then round the green play is up a little bit, iron play is a little bit down, and then the really big shocker
0: is you
1: better be able to putt to win a U.S. Open.
0: I assume we're going to have super slick greens too, right? Mm-hmm. What You know yeah. what kind of grass this is? I heard this is a weird grass, like not what you normally see out in California.
1: You know, I'm actually not sure, and part of that is because I- – this might surprise you as a golfer myself, but I just don't really care about the grass. Types it, well, that, hey, that's
0: a great question because, uh, you know, like yeah. I've, it, so you're telling me that I, I, I've always been a big believer that like the, it, the greens don't affect putting uh, like of these professional putters. I just think it's a stroke gain psychology thing. If they think that they're on a surface, yeah. they putt well on and it's going to make them feel a little bit more confident standing over the ball. I think that's where you start to see putting splits. But the grass itself, I don't think makes a big difference. But what the fuck do I know? So with, with grass type splits, it it's one of those things where I think
1: from, I, I can even approach this more from a data side than I can a player. And that is just, you have to be so incredibly careful with this because the way the PGA tour schedule works is you're often playing one grass type for three, four mm-hmm. straight weeks, and then you go to a different one, three, four straight weeks. So let's say someone goes to into the Florida swing where they know that they are having some kind of alignment issue with their putting, right? And so they're working on this behind the scenes, but it's a complete mess. So you have like four straight really bad weeks of putting. Now for the next three years, your splits on Bermuda are going to be terrible, but it's not because anything that had to do with Bermuda. It's just because for those four weeks, you had a real issue with your alignment. You ended up getting it fixed. Now you go up North, you're on bent grass. All of a sudden now you're putting well, but it's not because you went from Bermuda to bent. It's because you figured out your alignment issue. So you really have to be careful with those splits because I think, there's significantly more selection bias and just total randomness than there is real signal
0: to it. I'm not gonna lie, I fucking love that. I mean, that's like some of the best analysis I've ever heard. Because I always wonder about these putting splits. Am I chasing a ghost? So, let me, if we're mm-hmm. gonna touch on that, I got to ask this one: What about fast versus slow? Because I'll just tell you from my personal experience. Once again, a slap dick at golf. I love <laughs> slow greens. I mean, like I, 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 I can roll it so well on slow greens. I think it's just because I hit it with confidence. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about blasting it by eight feet, right? Yeah. So, is there a edge there on fast? versus slow greens? Yeah, if, if there's
1: signal anywhere, I think it would be fast versus slow. I, I can tell you I'm a much better putter on fast greens than I am slow greens and it's because of my putting stroke. My putting stroke is, you know, my my grip pressure is incredibly light. My putting stroke is almost all torso rotation. So I'm going to do better when I can just minimally rotate and I don't have to get any hand involvement there to create the power of the stroke. Where I then question things is, almost every golf tournament on the PGA tour is played with greens that would be considered fast by most people. So slow being like a 10, 10 and a half on the stim. I don't think that that's really going to change much versus a 13 because you're still not hitting putts where you have to really use your hands at all. So uh, maybe there's something there, certainly more likely to find some real signal in fast versus slow than in Bermuda versus bent, et cetera. But, uh, I I still have a little bit of hesitance there. Now, the one last thing I'll say there, though, is at least with Fast for Slow, you're getting better sample sizes for each than you are all the different types of graphs.
0: I got it. So just to, like if we want to, if, if you are convinced that you want to play good putters at the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. just go play Brendan Todd and Denny McCarthy and your typical great putters that are good on all surfaces yeah. and don't get caught up. I think it's bent. I think I saw that it's bent. I was like, bent in Southern California? That seems so weird, right? Uh, but I remember someone yeah. saying that. I was like, wow. Because they were pointing out that it's not the type of grass you would expect. But once again, not a big mm-hmm. grass expert either. Um, all right. So what are what are some of your big takeaways from the course? Like, uh, you know, when I think of us opens, I think that, um, you know, it's basically surviving long par fours and long par threes. That's where the, it, it's, it's, it's like death by a thousand cuts is where they get you. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's just not many birdie holes, even the par fives, you know, like you're going to still have to hit one or two really good shots to make a birdie on the par fives. Uh, and, and so what are your takeaways from LACC? Where, where, where are they going to get this course? Where are they going to be gotten? Um, And, uh, you know, you've already said that, uh, like, off the tee is – you think it is going to matter or not going to matter versus the other three parts of the game?
1: I I think it will matter, and I think it's going to be distance off the tee that matters most just because that's typically the case. Now, one of the reasons why that would typically be the case is because in almost every single U.S. Open setup, you're going to get brutal rough, Mm. right? And I I think that's my biggest question is can the rough at LACC get to that same level? Because if you watch that flyover – Number one, the rough is often like out of play. They almost don't want the rough to be a part of some of those holes. They want the fairway running kind of straight into these like little sandy areas, things of that nature. Uh, so we will have to kind of wait and see from that aspect of it. But just to get back to the uh, the real signal on putting in U.S. Opens, I think we're going to continue to see that here. And the main reason for that is you're always going to get a difficult setup. And when you get difficult setups, what are you left with? You're left with a lot of testers for par, sometimes even for bogey. Uh, You know, your only really good looks at birdie might be from 8 to 15 feet instead of having a bunch of tap-ins like you do in other tournaments. And something that uh, my co-host Justin and I have talked about a lot on our show, Progress Pro, is the idea that if there's an aspect of putting that is stable and that is predictive, it's putting from that, like, let's say 5 to 15-foot range above all else.
0: So, all right, and let's just I, – I, I don't want to get in the weeds with talking about specific players, mm-hmm. but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Scotty Scheffler. He's just a to green god right yeah. now. And I think what you just said, that if putting is going to be so important, I think a lot of people are going to see that it's almost like he's had the yips since the uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, match play, right? And here's yeah. what I'll say. I watched Jordan Spieth have the yips back in, what was that, 17 or 18? He went from being a god putter to, like, he couldn't make a three-footer. And here yeah. – I'm going to come at you, and I'm going to tell you that everything you just said about putting, all those 10 to 15 footers to save your par – makes me like Scotty even more. Because what Scotty's doing is he's missing those three-footers for birdie. But I swear to God, he still makes every 18-footer to save par. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, And it's just like what Jordan did in 17-18. Everybody would get onto yeah. him for missing those short birdies, but they didn't realize he was still making every 20-footer to save par. Um, and they were just focusing on the short ones he was missing. And they just always seemed to be frickin' birdie putts. I don't know if it's a lack of focus or what, but when they were three-foot par putts, he never missed them. It was always the three-foot birdie putts. So I- is Scotty the nuts play this week?
1: you know he might be and and I would even go a step further and say if you are playing him it's not necessarily because hey now he's finally putting for par instead of birdies it's just that he's hitting the ball at a level where he will have fewer of those testers for par than almost everybody else because he is turning bogey holes into birdie holes and then just not converting the birdie uh whereas you know a lot of other guys they're playing for either par or bogey on holes where Scotty's going to give himself a lot of opportunities for birdie.
0: So over the past few years, I've really noticed the PGA Championship, which I'm rocking the hat here from Oak Hill. They've really tried to become like the U.S. Open light, right? And mm-hmm. like they've really tried to copy a lot of their, you know, the, the courses they're choosing, the way they choose to uh, 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 have the course play is kind of, you know, it's just a softer version of the U.S. Open. So with that said, can we look at Oak Hill? and draw many conclusions at the kind of guys that we might want to be targeting and the kind of guys that can perform well at the U uh, S open.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's absolutely uh, worth a worthwhile like endeavor, but I I'd, I'd just stretch it uh, even further and say, don't just stop at Oak Hill. Look at all past U S opens, all past PGA championships. Look at Bay Hill, look at Muirfield village. Whenever you get like a really stern test of golf, who comes to the forefront?
0: Right. And I imagine this is a good week to really be, you want those guys that are going to grind for you, right? You want the guys that yeah. like when it gets tough, they're going to go out there and they're going to, you know, they're just going to they're going to they're going to scrap their balls off to make sure that they can save as many pars as possible. Guys that instantly yeah. come to mind. Basically, I have this European bias, right? I think of like Fitzpatrick <laughs> and Lowry and, and Fleetwood as all these guys that will go grind their balls off for you, right? Never guys I want when the winning score is going to be minus 22, but if the winning score is going to be like, you know, minus 6 to minus 12, give me those guys all day long
1: yeah and and the other thing there is i think that's why we do see an emphasis off the tee when it gets really difficult too is just because if you're in if you're in bad shape off the tee in in a regular golf tournament you can recover and and maybe even still give yourself scoring opportunities when you get on these incredibly difficult golf courses with these difficult setups being out of position at all it is just such an uphill battle to get back to even uh, a situation where you have a high Chance of par, so uh, you can really turn. Uh, this is, I think, one of the biggest reasons why I am always kind of over the field on on the way that I value off the tee performance from players is that you just create such an advantage if you can turn
0: bogey holes into birdie opportunities, and the only way you can do that is off the tee. So let, let let's let's just saddle up here and let's be let's be men and let's you can't choose Rom or you can't choose Scotty because they're cheat codes right now, okay? Mm-hmm. Who of all the players in this field do you feel like is the best course fit? Not who's necessarily going to win, just like the ideal guy that you think of that would be like a perfect course fit. And I hope you don't steal mine, but I I, I didn't want to steal yours, so I'll let you lead. I'm gonna try to go really off the board here, Ooh, and I like it. the the name is coming
1: to my mind because we've already talked about him a little bit in relation to something else we'll talk about later in the show, but I'm going to go with Cameron Smith here. Uh, When earlier, when we were talking about, you know, the best putters in the world, you mentioned Danny McCarthy, Brennan Todd, the two that I view as the best putters in the world are Sam Burns and Cam Smith. So you've got that from Cam Smith. You also then of course, get the fact that he's one of the best scramblers in the world, if not the best, you know, just short game player in the world. And we see that also uh, get that uh, predictive value raised in in typical U S open setups. I think we'll continue to see that at LACC. Um, And then the the big thing for Cam Smith is that accuracy off the tee, definitely his biggest weakness, typically doesn't hurt players as much in U.S. Opens as it does elsewhere. So all of those things just kind of fit together and say maybe Cam Smith pulls out another big
0: win you don't have to convince me the pricing came out for um the uh, DraftKings uh, just a few hours ago and i and i, I saw cam smith's price i'm like well i'm playing him i mean <laughs> that's just another dude he'll just scramble his balls off and uh you yeah. know like when he's in it he's just i just think he's the meanest grinder in the world so i mm-hmm. i love him and yes i am a little worried about his off the tee but if you're telling me that maybe off the tee won't be as punitive this week as it normally is then i like that Another point is mm-hmm. you said Sam Burns, one of the two best putters in the world. Could you have told him that today when you have a seven footer on 17 to make a birdie oh, to make no. the cut for me as I picked him as the one guy I'm playing this week? That prick. Uh, I know. Did you, I don't know if you
1: were watching in the morning too, but he had like three consecutive 20 footers that looked like they were in with six inches to go and, and they missed. So it was. Man, he's I mean, just playing I, so well. If you want, I mean, if you want a guy to like be mushed,
0: if you ever need a guy to be mushed, just tell me to play him at DFS. I can mush anybody. <laughs> I, anybody. I can destroy their lives. Um, so I think the guy for me, and uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, this might be cheating because I almost, I almost feel like he's playing like the third best player in the world right now. I just, if I'm going to go with the PGA analogy and I'm going to go with guys who hit it long and straight, which seems like something that will be very beneficial here and can smack some long irons, which I assume based on the distance of a lot of these holes, long irons are going to be in play quite frequently. How do I, how do, how is Victor Hovland not going to win this tournament?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a good call, man. uh, Long irons. I I don't know if you've messed around much with with the, the data that uh, DataGolf has now on like all of this type of, of approach skill, uh, bucketed into um, 50 to 100 yards, 100 to 150, 150 to 200, and then 200 plus. But it's some pretty cool stuff. And certainly like there are guys who are incredible with long irons and the rest of their irons aren't quite as good. Like Sung J.M., Gary Woodland are the, are the main two that come to mind there. So if you do think that long irons are going to be significantly more predictive than any other aspect of the iron game, there's definitely something to be found there, guys that you could end up with a, a strong lean towards.
0: It seems like over half of the approach shots are going to come in 175+. plus. Uh, That includes the par threes. Of course, the par fives. Mm -hmm. I I guess probably 10 to 12 around are going to be 175 plus. So uh, unless you're just mashing it out there, 330, which, you know, who's I I can't even think of anybody right now outside of Hovland that I think is consistently hitting it 320 and straight like the other guys that are hitting it that far. They're just not really hitting it great right now. Uh, They're not. Rory's not great Mm -hmm. off the tee right now. Rom is hit or miss off the tee right now. Um, I guess Scotty, but Scotty's a fucking God. We don't even count him in these lists.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Scotty's definitely up there. Uh, we actually at FTN, we have a, a metric, stroke scan driving accuracy, where we take stroke scan off the tee and we separate it into two components stroke scan through distance and stroke scan through um, accuracy alone. And uh, there, there are certainly some guys who are still up there. Like I, I'll say, Rory, maybe he doesn't kind of fit what you think of uh, him being at his best off the tee right now, but he's still at over half a stroke gain per round with his distance and over a third of a stroke gain per round with his accuracy off the tee. So there, there are some guys who are maybe uh, a little are driving the ball a little bit better than the reputations. Or but what, the, what about what the whole middle ground?
0: What about the middle ground where Rory's a fucking loser? Does do we need to factor that in at all? Is that, or is that just, is that not part of the equation? I'm sorry. Just Patrick Rogers and Rory are the two guys I shit on. If I missed a chance to do it here, it would be very off brand. I can't be doing that. All right.
1: I, you know what, I I can't really blame you for it because I was one Rory birdie short last week at uh, Mirfield Village of a of a huge DraftKings day, so that one still stings.
0: Rory letting somebody down. I I mean, utterly shocked. <laughs> I am utterly shocked that Rory would let somebody down. I, I I can't believe it to be honest. Uh, all right. Uh, let's talk a little uh, DFS. Uh, that's daily fantasy sports new guy. How the hell are you watching my show and you don't know that? uh all right how long have you been in the dfs game because you work at you already uh, uh, uh you already said you work for ftn which is you know one of the bigger mm-hmm. sites in this industry how long have you been in the industry how'd you get in uh let's talk and let's talk a little dfs and uh the future of it because you know it's kind of what i knew for a living yeah
1: so i i started playing dfs like right out of college and it was just for fun um i i started as you know i, I loved fantasy football and then i was told hey i could do like a a fantasy football draft type of thing every single week. Absolutely. I want to do that. So that's how I got into DFS. Um, I started working with a, a company fantasy team advice, boy, probably like six or seven years ago now. And and it was just, you know, I had built a PGA model and said to them, do you, do you want me to, you know, join the team and, and give you this PGA model. And so that's how I, I started joined FTN uh, two years ago now and, Currently the director of analytics there, but as far as like DFS is concerned, um the the biggest thing I'd say is around probably five years ago now, something like that, I started to play it a little bit more significantly, more significantly, and all of a sudden I was like fully supporting my golf pursuits through DFS. So that was pretty cool. And
0: uh, isn't that lot- finally I just Is that called a hand? Like or a wallet? What is it called whenever like a young golfer who's trying to like grind out the mini tours but doesn't have the money? What is that called when you get like a financial backer? Some some kid taught me this term. Sponsor. Yeah, but he had like they they had like a a a term for it. Like I know they're a sponsor, but he's like you gotta have a wallet or you gotta have a a pocket or something. I, uh, I've never heard that because he, like, he was trying to recruit me to do it. I'm like, I'm not going to give you money to go chase mini tours. Uh, <laughs> get the fuck out of here, kid. Um, and uh, 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 you were doing, so instead of you having to have a, whatever the hell that term is a, a, a sponsor, a backer, mm-hmm. you were doing it by supplementing it just with uh DFS. Yeah. That's crazy. And are you still are you still mixing it up, trying to get out there on mini tours or or move up? And I don't know, corn fair. I think corn fair is actually in Oklahoma this weekend. I, I don't even. know. It, it might be.
1: I I haven't done a mini tour event in a little over a year now, and uh, I'm pretty much just doing like state opens and and U.S. Open qualifying at this point. I won the Pennsylvania Open um, two summers ago, so looking forward to trying to not defend that, but defend the Eastern side. It, it alternates Eastern and Western sides each mm-hmm. year, and so we're back on the East Coast, which is where I'm on uh, where, where I'm at uh, here in, in Pennsylvania, so hopefully I can do something good there.
0: I've always thought that being a college golfer just sounds like the coolest thing ever. But the flip side of that is, I can't think of a tougher existence than being a grinder on the mini tours. Just like weekend to weekend, just trying to find the money to go or mm-hmm. to get in these tournaments because you got to pay to get in them. You got to travel. You got to cover all those costs. And then if you don't perform, even if you do perform well, I think it's pretty modest mm-hmm. income. Uh, and and if you don't perform well, like legit, can you even afford to go to the next event? That just sounds like a brutal, brutal lifestyle, especially in a mm-hmm. game that is as fickle as golf
1: yeah yeah the the travel is is just dreadful at times i can't tell you how many times i've driven 14 plus hours you know in in one day um as far as the money is concerned i don't think there's anybody on the mini tours or pga tour canada or pga tour latin america that isn't losing money and not advancing because if, if you're playing well enough to even break even on Those circuits, chances are you are rapidly ascending to the Corn Ferry Tour, to PGA Tour, things of that nature. It's just like you are hemorrhaging money if you are not consistently in contention, winning, let's say, once a month, something like that. You're, You're just guaranteed to
0: lose money the number of incredibly good golfers out there always blows my mind. Cause I just live in my little <laughs> golf world where I just think everybody sucks. And I'm like a 90 percentile player. And then I meet somebody who's just a truly incredible golfer. I play one round with them. I'm like, what, wh- who, what are you? Are you a God from another planet? And like, <laughs> they, they can't even sniff getting onto like even the corn fairy tour. And I'm mm-hmm. like, how good are the guys on the corn fairy tour in the PGA? If you can't even sniff getting on there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just incredible to me. It seems like it'd be so hard. Like you gotta be, just like God level good at golf to to even sniff those kind of upper level tours, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think people might be surprised at how small the gap is between like the the worst PGA tour players and the worst corn ferry tour players, or the best mini tour players. That gap is really small, where their separation is. You know, the average PGA tour player to the best PGA tour player is pretty massive and then also just the the guys who have no chance versus the guys who do have a chance. The guys who are just trying to make cuts on the mini-tours to guys who are consistently in contention and have an actually really good chance of moving up to the Cornfield Tour and things of that nature. That's where the separation is. But the other thing I'd say is it's not just that there are so many good players, it's that the amount of really great players is growing, and what it takes to be a great player is also increasing. Like, I I can say... um, from my mini tour days, the first like year or two when I was out there. So the, the nice thing is you in a lot of these events, you play the same course year after year, just like they do on the PGA Tour. And scores that were giving me like top fives the first few years at this point in time are barely making cuts. Wow. On the same courses, in the same
0: conditions, the fields are just that much deeper and the best are just that much better. So I I just it seems like to me, and once again, not a good golfer, don't know this world, but it seems like to me that most of the golfers right now that are coming up are almost like prodigies who are being created in labs, and they have you know <laughs> a- access to the best technology and the best coaching, and like good old farm boys like Adam Shank, who just like to go hit some balls on the weekend. Like I don't think you're gonna see like literally any guys like that on the tour, maybe in five years or ten years from now, uh, because all these guys are just little little lab rats that are like being created, uh, uh, like to be perfect golfers from an early age. Is that is that a bad take cuz I don't know, but that's how I feel.
1: I don't think it's I don't think it's that bad of a take. I I think we have definitely seen a a movement towards number one like guys just being significantly more ready once they get to the tour to win. Like think about Morikawa winning. Like how quickly he won multiple majors. Like th- there's a much much uh less steep learning curve than what we're accustomed to seeing and, and you probably hear all the time like if you, if you like watching pga tour live you get a lot of boomer takes from those guys uh just yesterday i was i was hearing um in regards to levick A. um saying like oh I, I don't really like these new rules like you you should have to give you should have to spend at least a year so you can like learn the the professional life on corn on ferry it's like We don't need that anymore. Guys are so ready immediately to perform in large part because the information in golf is just so much better now. There are so many ways that you can prepare for golf tournaments. Guys are going to so many new lengths as well just to keep their body in shape, to keep their mind in shape, all these things that 10 years ago was completely foreign in the game.
0: Speaking of those PGA guys, this this might be my biggest pet peeve ever. Why do none of those motherfuckers understand how a cut line works? Like, literally, they're like, well, (laughs) the cut line's definitely going to be this. It's like, there's no chance that's going to be the cut, you dumbass. Look at the conditions, and there's still 78 guys that got to play in the afternoon. There's zero chance that's going to be the cut, and you're saying that they're in. How can you do this for a living and be so bad at knowing how a cut line works that it's a fluid thing that's constantly moving and is influenced by the guys who haven't played yet? It, it
1: dude it's, it's insane think about it. like they were in those events they were talking to their caddy you know in, in the morning on a friday like hey what do you think we have to get to here and they were just coming up with numbers like two or three strokes off what it was actually going to be like it's it's insane to think about i i don't have any answer for you it's it's embarrassing, honestly, how bad they are at understanding
0: that, that would be like us covering DFS and being like, I don't get this ownership stuff. It's just no one knows how it works. We're just going to, you know, it's a, you know, it's like, what, how do you, I mean, like, yeah. it's a basic requirement for the job is to understand this. Right. Which I call, right. that might be, this is how I know I'm becoming a low-key professional. That might be my best transition I've ever done. Let's talk a little DFS ownership because <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're the dude who does uh, the golf, the PGA ownership over at FTN, right? Yeah, I am. And uh, we, we
1: had... So we had one other guy who was doing MME ownership for main slates. And then I was doing single entry. He has just left. So now I'm doing MME ownership, single entry ownership and showdown ownership. So the, the trifecta for
0: PGA and of all the sites I was I was uh 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 tracking there I had to quit tracking because fucking people were getting so butthurt. How dare me hold people accountable to the product that they're selling? Yeah. And uh, I got so many rah 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 rah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Anyways, so you in of all the sites I tracked, you definitely were putting out the best ownership out there, the most consistent. You know, you were right there with me. I'm not gonna shit on myself, but of all the tout sites, I don't consider myself a tout site. And so like I I, I hate to get down in the weeds, and we might lose some people here, but like when you're making Good ownership projections, which I believe outside of weather is the single most important thing to consider when it comes to PGA DFS. What do you, what, what do you, what are you like some things you're factoring in? Don't give away the state secrets, but tell me a little bit about like, like what influences uh, 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 ownership. Is it just simply the touts talking about it? Is it projections? What, what, like, what do you see moving it more than anything?
1: Yeah, so it. The, I think the most fascinating aspect of it is how different projecting MME ownership is from single entry ownership. Because for MME ownership, it's all about who are the optimizers going to be spitting out, right? And for single on, single entry ownership, there's so much more like psychological understanding that has to come into it. Um, and and I think a lot of it is honestly just doing manual tweaks to stuff that you know you you. Notice patterns throughout the years, and you know I've been doing the single entry ownership for probably three or four years now, and so there are just certain guys. It's like anytime this guy projects at seven percent, people are going to say, "I get to use so and so at seven percent. I'm using him. And he ends up fifteen percent, regardless." And then there are guys who consistently going to project, you know, twelve to fourteen percent, something like that, and and it, it creates like this no man's land, and they end up being six to eight percent or something like that. So a lot of it is just understanding how people. Uh, perceive certain players and and when people like to use certain players versus when they like to fade them things of that nature and so I I definitely enjoy this single entry ownership more because it's it's like this giant puzzle whereas the MME ownership is more just yeah this is what the optimizers are probably going to spit out
0: so I and here's what I notice with single entry you may agree or disagree but whenever I'm I don't do single entry ownership but when I do I basically tell my people that if there's a chalky guy uh, the the FOMO and single entry gets even higher people feel like oh my god i mm-hmm. can't miss out on th- on this 28 cam young because then i'll be dead and so i always tell them when you're doing take my ownership and in single entry if there's a chalky guy basically add 20 if he's 20 you know if he's if he's 30 here mm-hmm. you need to go make him 36 in single entries uh because they're going to be there's going to be that fomo I, I gotta have this guy in my single entry it's my one lineup uh it, it, are you are you down uh, do you agree with that or am i off base there
1: yeah i, I think if there's so outside of the like psychological aspect of it, where people are making different decisions when they're building by hand than when they're just hitting optimize and, and setting all the rules. Uh, the, the biggest difference that you see between MME ownership and single entry ownership is the chalk gets more concentrated in single entries and the you know peripheral guys slip through the cracks a lot more often in single entries.
0: Gotcha. All right. Last, uh, we got two things I want to talk about. We got to do a little DFS. When it comes to the U.S. Open, we already talked about a couple liens of guys we like. Uh, The pricing just came out. You didn't get a chance to look at it this morning, did you? I have not, no. I'll just go ahead and tell you there. The the pricing in the 7,000s is redonkulous. I mean, like the guys at 7,500, it's it like, oh, it's going to be so chalky there. Uh, they did a good job pricing the guys up high. But by and large, are there any guys that you've kind of been circling for a while that you're like, ah, I'm going to play him. I don't give a shit what his ownership or anything like that is. His salary is uh, that you've had circled for a while for the U.S. Open.
1: I'll take this in a little bit. Different direction. I have been playing Keegan Bradley in almost every single event and he just keeps delivering and he keeps delivering at like 7% ownership when he's surrounded by guys who I haven't projected above and they end up coming in like 15 to 20%. So uh, I don't know where Keegan is in the pricing yet, but my guess is he will be 10% or less and I'll be using him.
0: I I can already tell you, I think I remember seeing him right around 7,600 and he's right there with like Wyndham Clark and Ricky Fowler and just all kinds of big names. He's going to get overlooked. And just like at Oak Hill. That's where he's been all year long. At at Oak Hill? I played the shit out of him. $100
1: per event.
0: You don't want to play Keegan Bradley at, at a long, tough course. I'll play him. And honestly, I think he got T thirty second at the PGA Championship, but he had like twenty fucking birdies. And like at yeah. DraftKings scoring, that's what matters. I'd rather have a T thirty two with uh, with twenty birdies than a T nine with with seven birdies. Um, so one hundred percent. We at FTN, we
1: have a, a metric called birdie rate over expectation, which basically says, hey, if given how well this guy has played, he has made X percent more birdies than we would have expected, or X percent less then we would have expected that sort of thing. And Kagan's up there. So uh, I think that the best way to interpret that data is like anyone with a positive birdie rate over expectation is likely to outproduce their real life leaderboard position on the DraftKings points leaderboard. And
0: Kegan's up there for sure. Plus people are going to be looking at bogey avoidance this week. And <laughs> Keegan Bradley makes a lot of bogeys. So he won't be He's showing bad. up on people's models, but don't worry guys, <laughs> he'll make eight bogeys, but he gets, he gets seven birdies around. So he, you know, that plus one at the U S open is going to be a great round. And he makes bogeys everywhere, regardless of how difficult
1: the holes are. So you, you, I think that you know you can definitely find uh, an advantage just looking at guys who can score on really difficult holes. They don't need birdie holes to make birdies. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys That's who are most likely to end up.
0: That guy makes so many birdies on holes that you have no business making a birdie yeah. on. I think it was like like yeah. 17 at the PGA Championship. Legit, I think there was like two birds there all day. One was Keegan Bradley's. Yeah. I don't give a fuck. I'm just gonna yeah. go. Uh, I'm just gonna go uh, stick it to nine feet and roll in a putt um exact
1: same concept for victor hovland at 17th memorial by
0: the yeah. way yeah oh yeah i remember that uh that was yeah that mm-hmm. was crazy that was a, that was an insane hole he, he might have been the only birdie on sunday on that what? hole that's crazy yep. yeah victor's another mm-hmm. good but victor's kind of like god level right now i'm pretty sure he's the third best golfer in the world right now go pokes go pokes all right really uh, might be okay uh last thing we got to talk about this live and pga mm-hmm. thing i'll be pretty honest with you i don't even fucking get what's going on that much it, it, it i'm gonna give it you before I give you my basic outline and you tell me I'm an idiot, or are we just going to kind of half ass talk about it?
1: I, I half ass talk about it okay. is probably where, where I'm most comfortable here because, yeah, I, I don't understand the ins and outs. And,
0: and I think, does anybody though, does feeling, anybody, I don't think anybody understands what's going on yet.
1: I, so I think that's a, a great point, including, by the way, like the people in power making these decisions. I don't think they know where this is going. So my biggest feeling towards this is like, it's a lot easier to over-speculate here than to have a reasonable discourse about it because I think the the most truthful answer is nobody knows let's just wait and figure it out down the
0: line. My understanding is they're going to kind of be it's almost like there's three there's like three tours that are all going to kind of be under one umbrella now, right? The DP World mm-hmm. Tour, which is the European, of course the PGA Tour, and then LIV apparently is still going to be around, right? And there's still I imagine yeah. there's still going to be teams of 4 and the stupid fucking format of 54 holes. I hate it, right? I you know, I'm not even a golf purist. I just hate the format. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it seems like there's going to be three leagues. And I would imagine that now, I don't know this for sure, I'm guessing, but like, you know how a PGA Tour player can go play on DP and DP players can come play on PGA? I think you're going to be able to fluidly kind of move between the tours and fix your schedule like that. You can still go play Team Golf on Live and then still come play in the Memorial or whatever and then go play in Abu Dhabi or wherever the DP World Tour is at. And it seems like that's what it's going to be. And then there's going to be a, a little overriding commission of people that see all all three tours and that's what it's going to be. So basically those guys that took a bag of money still get to go play their casual golf and shorts with teammates and then can come over and <laughs> jump on a PGA thing. That's what I'm seeing. And if that's the case, uh, uh uh the live guys fucking just hit a home run. They, they, they win so big.
1: Yeah, I, I agree there. It does sound like there might be some pretty severe penalties or like real obstacles that they have to go around to get back to being able to play on the PGA tour. But again, like I don't, I, it's so hard to tell what is complete rumor and has no substance behind it versus things that are like very likely to actually be in place. Really don't know. Um, but yeah, I- I'm with you there. Like th- there's definitely a chance here that the live guys just make out like bandits and the, and the PGA tour guys really get the, the real end of the deal.
0: Here's the one thing I know. I do not want to see team golf. Okay. I, I can do the Zurich partner Agreed. once a year, but like mm-hmm. if we're going to start doing like team golf, especially for DFS, which if I'm going to be honest with you, dude, that's all I really give a shit about. Uh, yeah. And then I like, I, I I'm just going to quit. Like that would just be so brutal. If, we, if it's going to be like eight of those events a year, i am be like, this is so stupid. Um, So teams golf sucks. Yeah. There's a magic to the fact that in, in golf and
1: tennis, you're on your own. It's just, it's just you against the world. And, you know, as somebody who played a lot of other sports growing up, like one of the things that I always hung my hat on in basketball, for example, was I can have a day where I'm not shooting well and I'll just work my ass off on defense. I'll create plays for my teammates, things of that nature. When you don't have it on the golf course, you just don't have it on the golf course. Right. And and so being on an island, being able to rely on yourself when you don't have it, it, there's a magic to it. Like I said, and being able to like especially if if team golf is you know you've got five guys on your team and you only count four scores having that out of just ah, i just won't be the guy who counts today and all of a sudden your your round of golf doesn't matter i hate that so much
0: So this, all this happening, I have to imagine that this is going to be good for PGA DFS, because if nothing else, this has made uh, golf very in the news, right? It's got some casuals that probably have forgotten about golf, and golf is relevant again. I think this U.S. Open might be a banger week with all those guys, you know, the first big tournament after all this news is broke. And I think in the long run, this is going to be good. Plus, for us, we just want to see all the fucking best players together, right? That, that, that's when it's really fun when you get to, you know, d- decipher between Cam Smith and Brooks Koepka and Bryce, and I love mm-hmm. having all those guys back in the player pool to, to uh, 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 you know, it just makes DFS more fun. It makes it more competitive uh, and it draws more people in. So I am of the belief that I think that in the long run, this is going to be good for PGA DFS and sports uh, and PGA betting in general. You with me? I'm definitely with you there. And for the exact
1: same reasons, there, there are just guys that, you know, throughout the year, you find yourself betting a lot. You, you consistently like betting on them. You like playing them in DFS and we get a lot of those guys back. Cam Smith is, is maybe my favorite guy to bet on or play in DFS in all of golf hit all three of his outrights last year. Uh, You know, he was a, a big part of my PGA championship DFS team this year did quite well and that surge he had on Sunday was as much fun as I've had watching golf in a while. So, yeah, it, it'll just be nice to have some of these names
0: back. He, uh, I, I I don't know. I, You look a little younger to me, so you might not get this reference. But uh, ni- early 1990s uh, WWF wrestling, there was the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. I've always thought Cam Smith is the Shawn Michaels of the PGA Tour. He's uh he just kinda has like that kind of fuck you attitude and like you you wanna hate him <laughs> but you can't help but love him. And that's just cancer, these snarls that lip up. I'm like, I like the cut of this guy's jib. I love Cam Smith. Um I gotta tell you, so that's I assume that's the guy that you're most excited to have back from the Live Tour, right? For sure, yeah. Uh, I think I'm gonna go a different direction. I really enjoyed. Plus, he really did me well at the PGA Championship. I like Bryson. I I, I think he's a goofy bastard that has you know like mm-hmm. he's one of those super smart people that just never got the uh, you know the uh, how to uh, social norms cue. You know, like, there's a lot of those right. really smart people right. that just don't get it socially. And uh, <laughs> but. You know what? Skinny Bryson at the PGA Championship, I'm in. I think he's a thing. I think that the guy is a legit talent. And I think he, more than anything, I think he's just a fucking tryhard. I think he really cares about being good at golf. I think he tries harder than anybody else out there to perfect golf. Now, will he ever get there? I don't know. But I know that caring gets you a long fucking way. So I am so excited to have Bryson back. What are your takes on Bryson, by the way? I'm, I'm mostly in agreement with you there. I, I think he has definitely
1: overthought the game at times where you know he had like a very clear winning formula with all that distance and then he would take it another direction and so so to some degree like it's it's a double-edged sword right like you can't have the guy who decided to go all in on distance the way nobody else had if you also don't have the guy who then overthinks it again and goes a different direction right so there's that aspect to it but the, the thing that makes Bryson so intriguing from a DFS perspective is his game is so extreme to the distance side of things that he becomes like a really, really good course fit at some courses, a really bad course fit at others. And so he's much more sensitive than most to his course fit. And that excites me because then it, it makes his results a little bit more predictable,
0: even though his results are extremely volatile. I agree. Hey, any topics you want to talk about? I've been leading anything, uh, everything. You got any anything you want to talk about in general? I'll go. I'll go any direction you want. No pressure if you don't. Uh, we, we. I told you I keep you to fifty minutes. We're right there. So anything, anything we go past this, it's on you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, nothing comes to mind. I,
1: I'll just say I. I definitely appreciated early in the year when you were doing that comparison of the ownership projections, just because we always love competition. Right. And, and so that was, that was a cool thing for me because it got us to kind of bear down a little bit more and say, okay, what are some things that we can do to improve our ownership? And uh, you know, that, that was a really fun thing. learn some new things in, in the ownership from that. And so, Appreciate you doing that, even though you haven't been able to
0: keep it up. Yeah, you, you you guys weren't the ones bitching. It's amazing the people that were getting good grades were very happy and upset when I, you know, they wanted me to keep putting it out. It was the five people that had shitty grades like, rawr, 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 rawr. Okay, <laughs> deal with it, all right? You're going to charge people 100 bucks a month. You have a responsibility to not put out a piece of shit product. Um, mm-hmm. uh, all right, hey. Uh, I really appreciate your time and coming on. This is, I couldn't have thought of a better person to have on my man. Why don't you tell people where they can find you both on Twitter, where you work, sell your site, sell you do it all. Go ahead.
1: Uh, hey, I really appreciate the invite. I appreciate giving me this kind of moment to, to push everything. You can find me on Twitter at Alex one. I am at FTN network, FTN daily.com FTN We just revamped our whole site. So more than anything else that I could say is go to any three of those sites slash free you get a three-day free trial you can check out all of the uh new sites that we have up and running now and we're going to have a really big kind of upgrade to our pga ownership page and just kind of all the information you could possibly want course fit projections um win probability top 10 probability made cut probability everything that you could possibly want including that birdie rate over expectation data and the stroke and driving accuracy metric all in one place so check us out for next week and hopefully we'll see you there
0: Hey, old guy, you. I know. You don't ever want to pay for uh, for DFS. I ain't going to pay for no DFS content until you're on a site, rather whether it's FTN, my mm-hmm. site, whatever site you use. I'm not here to push any particular. Okay, well, I push mine. But here's what I'll tell you. You don't know what you don't know. And until you're seeing all these tools that other people are using to make decisions, you don't realize what a disadvantage you're playing at, okay? So, once again, mm-hmm. I, I, if somebody's telling you, oh, sign up here, I've got picks for you, fucking run for the mountains. But if somebody's telling you I have tools that can help you make the better choices, those are the places you want to be. So, I think I am going to leave it off there guys thank you uh for being here once again thank you to my guest i uh have enjoyed talking to your brother we will uh i don't know if i'm ever going to do this again to be honest <laughs> they're a pain in the ass <laughs> but if i do i'll see you next time you mother fathers have a good evening